The sun is a hot, glowing ball of hydrogen and helium at the center of our solar system. It's located about 93 million miles away from the Earth, and without its energy, scientifically speaking, life as we know it would cease to exist. The Earth rotates on its axis as it rotates around the sun, giving us day and night. There's no denying the impact that the sun has on our lives. The sun also impacts us on a personal level. Think about your skin. Its, its rays travel 93 million miles, shining on each and every human being that steps outside. Now, depending on how much melanin you have in your skin and how long you're outside, the sun will change you. Right? Some of us, we get dark really quick. Some of us just crisp up a little bit, and others of us you spend a little bit of time, and next thing you know, you're burnt. Regardless of where you land in that spectrum, the truth remains that all who come into contact with the sun's rays are changed by them. In other words, there is no neutral response when it comes to coming into contact with the sun's rays. No one is left unaffected. And like the sun in our solar system, there is no neutral response to the Son of God. Our main idea for our study of God's Word this morning is this. Again, that there is no neutral response. Those who encounter Jesus either accept him or reject him. Again, there is no neutral response. Those who encounter Jesus either accept him or reject him. And our two points for today will come out of that main idea. Point number one, Christ accepted. Christ accepted. And point number two, Christ rejected. We'll see these two different responses in two different groups of people, the disciples and those from Jesus' hometown. A group to whom Christ is revealed and another group to whom Christ is concealed. As we approach our text uh, may we do so humbly, uh, like the man in Mark 9. I believe, help my unbelief. So with that in mind, our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 13, verses 51 to 58. And as is always the case, if you don't have your own Bible, feel free to take the one that's in the pews in front of you with you as a gift from us to you. Uh, we would want nothing more than for you to be able to read God's word for yourself. It can be found on page 819, 819 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 13, verses 51 to 58. Jesus says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his home, own household. 
And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Again, point one, Christ accepted. At this point in chapter 13, Jesus has taught seven parables, each highlighting different aspects of what the kingdom of heaven is like. Our passage for this morning is the eighth and final parable for this chapter. And Jesus begins with a question. He asks, have you understood all these things to his disciples? In light of all of chapter 13, in light of all these parables that have just come before this, have you understood this? Do you understand what I mean by these parables? And as you see in the text, the disciples respond, yes. Now, how much the disciples actually understood can be debated, but the weight of our parable doesn't rest on what the disciples and how the disciples responded, but instead on the actual parable itself. By way of reminder, a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, uh, meant to reveal the truth of the kingdom to some and to conceal the truth of the kingdom from others. So verse 52 again, and he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasures what is new and what is old. Now, before we dive into what each part of this parable means, I just want you to see the continuity between this parable and the parables that came before it. Right in the middle of our parable, we see the phrase that has been repeated all throughout the course of Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like. So so just like the seven parables that came before it, this last parable is meant to help us, and obviously as we see the disciples, understand better what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, even more specifically, and unique to this particular parable, what those who have been trained for the kingdom of heaven are like. Jesus begins by referencing a scribe. Now, don't get tripped up by the word scribe here. Often in Scripture, we see scribes and Pharisees kind of bundled together as the self-righteous group uh, that Jesus opposes. So think Matthew 23. That would be a great place to go see an example of that. In our text, scribe or teachers of the law is actually paired with trained for the kingdom of heaven. So unlike the self-righteous group that Jesus opposes in other places in Scripture, this reference to scribe is actually a good thing. These are scribes that have been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Unlike the Pharisees, these are teachers of the Scriptures who actually understand that Jesus fulfills all of the Scriptures. The truths of the kingdom are no longer concealed to them, but instead revealed to them, as we'll see in the second half of this sentence. This scribe, who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says is like a master or or homeowner. The text says that they have a treasure, and they are bringing out of this treasure what is new and what is old. Now, so we don't get confused about what's going on here, I want you to think about this parable kind of like a chart. So if you're taking notes, you might even want to draw this out if you're a visual person. Uh, so, so three rows and then two columns. So column number one, right, bucket number one, the who, uh, the scribe, right, who is also like the master of a house, who is also or represents all Christians, the disciples, followers of Jesus. So that's bucket number one, column number one, the who. Uh, column number two or bucket number two, the what, uh, the scribe that is trained for the kingdom of heaven, is like the master of the house that brings out the treasures, what is new and what is old. And then level number three here, 
is, the, is like the Christian who sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the New. Right? So just to repeat that, scribe is like the master of the house, referring to all Christians, trained in the kingdom, brings forth treasures new and old. Jesus is this treasure in the Old Testament that we see brought out in the New. So again, Jesus is the treasure all over the Bible. Christians have eyes to see this, love this, and share this. Everyone up to this point in salvation history was, was longing for, hoping for the promises to be fulfilled that they saw in the Old Testament by the Messiah. Friends, what a, what a privilege it is to live on this side of the cross, to see in the scriptures that Jesus is this old and new treasure. The gospel is this treasure. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, in, the, in, the, in this parable, we find a, a hidden responsibility uh, to, to cherish this gospel treasure. And we do so by cherishing the word and spreading the word. Cherishing the word and spreading the word. What I mean by cherishing the word is that we have a responsibility to grow in our understanding of God and the gospel. As Ephesians and Hebrews exhorts us, we are to grow up in Christ in every way, from, from milk uh, to solid food, to deepen our understanding of this good news. And fundamentally, we do this by, by reading the Word and hearing the Word, both Old and New Testament. So we gather, we sit, we listen, not to Jonathan Morgan's words, not to Dave Russell's words, but God's words. A church member, you protect and cherish God's words by holding every preacher in this pulpit accountable to them. So we also show that we cherish the word by encouraging others with the word. Encouraging others with the word. What better way to encourage brothers and sisters through seasons of prosperity and suffering and with the very words of God. You know, I could tell you in a difficult season, hey man, it's going to be all right. You'll be good. Or I could tell you that none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. Psalm 25, verse 3. Oh, friends, God's word will sustain a weary Christian far longer than your words will. We cherish the word by seeing Christ in all of scriptures, which is what our parable is encouraging us to do this morning. As we read God's word rightly, we see that God the Father has made promises to his people, and all of those promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is the culmination of the whole Bible. The Old Testament, Christ concealed. The New Testament, Christ revealed. So church family, I have a question for you. Do you cherish the word of God? Do you read it daily? What do you need to move around in your life so that you can make more time to spend time reading your Bible? Do you need to, I don't know, go to sleep earlier? Do you need to say no to that event? Do you need to set an alarm? Friend, do whatever it takes to spend more time in God's Word. Oh, Jonathan, where do I start? I'm glad you asked. Start in the gospel. The gospel of Mark would be a great place. Mark tends to be pretty concise and to the point. If you want to tackle the whole Bible, consider using the McShane reading plan. I'm going through it right now. 
It'll take you through the Bible in a year. If you need a study method, I highly recommend inductive study of the Bible. Observe, interpret, and apply. What does the text say? What does the text mean? And how do you apply it to your life, verse by verse? Friends, if we truly cherish the word, that leads to spreading the word, to sharing the gospel. We have a commission given to us by the one who saved us, right? Matthew 28, to go and make disciples. Sharing the gospel is a normal response of those who've received the gospel. What's abnormal is not sharing the gospel. Think back to the last time that you really received good news, a promotion. We just heard about the Antles being pregnant, a pregnancy. You aced a test. What's, what's the first thing you wanted to do when you heard that good news? You wanted to tell somebody. That's a normal reaction. Cherishing the word leads to spreading the word. So I have another question for you. When was the last time you shared the gospel? If it's been a long time, are you praying to that end? As someone who spent uh, seven years sharing the gospel with college students, I will tell you from firsthand experience that there is no greater joy than seeing someone come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. To watch someone who was blind now see. To see someone who was dead gain spiritual life. To see the enemy of God become a friend. Oh, church family, we have a responsibility, like the master of the house, to cherish the word and to spread the word. So the parable of the homeowner concludes the parables of Matthew 13. Over the course of eight parables, Jesus has taught both to the crowds and to the disciples what the kingdom of heaven is like. Uh, he taught that the heart can be one of four soils, and that the heart that receives this good news of the kingdom is like good soil where the gospel seed lands on it and it bears much fruit. He taught that there will be weeds that grow up alongside wheat, but when the harvest or, or judgment day comes, the wheat and the weeds will be gathered, the net will be pulled in, and the believer and the non-believer will be judged, uh, one cast away to eternal death and the other receiving eternal life. Well, friends, Jesus taught that the size of the kingdom is like a full-grown mustard seed, and its impact is like leaven. It begins small, and it seems insignificant, but when the kingdom has come, the Holy Spirit will cause regeneration. Uh, the kingdom, it will consist of people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Oh, Jesus taught the value of the kingdom, and that the one who finds it has found a hidden treasure, a pearl of great price, and in response sacrifices everything for the sake of following after Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, God's people in God's place, under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. When Jesus taught parables, they had a revealing or concealing effect. Some left him understanding and believing, and others left him confused and angered. Some accepted Christ and some rejected Christ, which is what we see happening in the remainder of our passage. Point number two, uh, Christ rejected. Christ rejected. Now, in our remaining verses, we have both a scene change and a genre change. We move from parable to historical narrative. little uh, Bible study tip here. Always be aware of what genre of scripture that you are reading. 
as that will impact how you interpret and apply the text to your life. In approaching the parable, we did so like a, like a gold miner, right? Uh, digging for intentionally hidden treasure. Now, as we approach this narrative, we do so observing a dialogue and the responses. Uh, like a fly on the wall, or like a third person in a room. We're, we're gleaning from the adjectives and verbs, uh, the tone of how we should rightly respond to Jesus' identity. So beginning in verse 53. I'll read it again for us. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So again, scene change. Uh, Jesus is now in his hometown of Nazareth. Among those who have seen him, those who, who know him, and we learn in the first half of 54 that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And his teaching led to their astonishment. And on the heels of this astonishment, they fire off some questions, right? Questions that make clear that these people clearly knew about Jesus, but did they actually know Jesus. What exactly did Jesus say that would lead to this kind of astonishment? Just earlier in the service, uh, Megan read for us Luke chapter 4, so where we get a little bit more detail on that very thing. Let's go ahead and turn there now. I want to read it one more time for us. Luke chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 16, we'll end at verse 24. More details about what exactly caused this astonishment by these people in Jesus' hometown. Luke 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you, do, you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So like I said, in Luke's account, we get a few more details. He fills in a few uh, gaps for us. First, we see that Jesus' teaching in the synagogues in the, on the Sabbath, that was a common thing. That wouldn't surprise anybody. Second, we see that what Jesus was teaching came out of the book of Isaiah. Uh, he, he wasn't given, given a preaching assignment, like, like I have been given this preaching assignment, uh, but instead he intentionally turned to Isaiah 61, or I should say scrolled to Isaiah 61. A prophecy that the, the coming Messiah will create a new and liberated uh, people by his spirit-empowered uh, preaching. 
Uh, This would have been the hope of every Jew listening to him read that scroll in the synagogue on that day. But the astonishing part comes next. He rolled up the scroll. He sat down. As everybody was focused on him, he proceeds to tell them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the Messiah that has come to create a new and liberated people. And I have done so, and I will continue to do so through my preaching and teaching, namely the forgiveness of sins. This is why the people who know Jesus' family by name, the people who knew what Jesus' dad did for work, this is why they're amazed. Because Jesus has just claimed to be God, offering freedom from sin to all who would turn and believe in him, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Friends, these folks, they, they, they couldn't connect the claim of Jesus being God to the fact that they knew his earthly family members. Yet Jesus had already been clear uh, that who, who he considered to be his family. The verses that precede this parable, Matthew 12, verse 50, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Friends, while they were concerned with Jesus' earthly family, uh, Jesus was busy building a spiritual family. There is a, uh, a warning for us in this exchange. You can know a lot about Jesus, but not actually know Jesus. You can grow up in a Christian home where you hear the gospel every day, and as much as of a mercy as that actually is, it does not equate to knowing Jesus. You can know all kinds of Bible trivia. You can sing, Oh, the rugged cross, my salvation, and not actually know this salvation. One of the most chilling passages in all of Scripture is Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23, where Jesus warns those who are listening to him preach the Sermon on the Mount. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Church family, heed this warning. There is a category for someone who lives their entire life thinking that they know Jesus. And on judgment day, they find out they only knew about Jesus. The most important way that we can know Jesus is as Savior. He is the Son of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, including yours. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Do you keep a close, life, close watch on your life and doctrine? These instructions and cautions teach us that believing, it's not just a one-time event. We must fight to believe the truth every day of our lives. Friends, good trees bear good fruit. In our text, we find that these questions, they culminate in verse 57, and they took offense at him. When Jesus revealed his identity to those in his hometown, he offended them. Why? Why did they reject the one who who came to save them from their sins? 
Well, friends, it's the same reason that people reject Jesus today. Because our natural response to Jesus is not neutral. We're not neutral as we respond to him. Our natural response is hostility. The Bible is clear. Since the fall of man in the garden, we have all gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. Every human being since Adam, because of sin, has rebelled against this holy God. Our sin blinds us to the truths of God and the gospel. Rather than naturally falling to our knees and serving this Lord in obedience, we stand in defiance against him. This is our sin nature. So whether you're a first century Jew in a synagogue on the Sabbath, or a 21st century Baptist in a, in a, on a Sunday in a church like this, without a work of the Holy Spirit, the truths of the gospel are offensive. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, friends, only the Holy Spirit changes hearts. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is the Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Friends, Jesus makes himself known. For every member of this church, this is your spiritual reality. We'll sing about this truth at the end of this sermon in the song, And Can It Be? Uh, the lyrics, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Our, our spirits are imprisoned by sin until God wakes them up, until he removes the chains. This is what Jesus was reading in Isaiah 61. He alone proclaims liberty to captives. And not only were the words of the prophet Isaiah being fulfilled in this interaction with the people in Jesus' hometown, but also the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, the remainder of verse 57, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Uh, here Jesus is loosely quoting and identifying himself with the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah eleven twenty one, 21, who in his day, Jeremiah's day, was told by the Lord to, to stop prophesying to the wicked people of his hometown because in their rebellion, they continued to worship false gods over the one true God. They rejected the message because it exposed their sin. And so God rejects them. Both Jeremiah and Jesus were not honored in their own hometowns. Yet this rejection of Jesus by his own hometown is a foreshadowing of an even greater rejection. You see, Jesus at this point in his ministry was about a year away from the cross. And it would be at the cross that Jesus would be finally rejected, not only by his only people, his own people, excuse me, but by God the Father. At the cross of Christ, the Father turned his face away. And he had to, because at the cross, Jesus took upon himself the sins of every person in human history who would repent and believe in him. At the cross, Jesus took the punishment that sinful rebels like you and me deserve. At the cross, every ounce of wrath 
stored up against sin was poured out on Jesus. Friends, at the cross, Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. Our passage ends by warning us about the dangers of unbelief. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I want to end our time by looking at three implications briefly of this rejection by the Son of God. Three things, a weighty judgment, grace for Gentiles, and a warning to remember. Starting with this idea of a weighty judgment, when Jesus performed uh, mighty works or, or miracles, the point was never the miracle. The point was what the miracle pointed to, that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. Only God can heal the sick. Only God can restore sight to the blind. Only God can command the seas to be still. Only God can make a paralytic walk or cleanse a leper. Only God has this authority. His mighty works were mercies to those who experienced them because it was a chance to recognize and accept him for who he is, God. And now the time had come for Jesus to no longer extend this mercy to those in his hometown. I think here we find another warning. Friends, there is an expiration date on God's mercy. There is an expiration date on God's mercy. So if you have not turned from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, be warned by this passage. This offer will not be extended forever. And when this mercy has expired, God's word says, then comes judgment. The second thing I think we see is, is grace for the Gentiles. Grace for the Gentiles. In God withdrawing from the Jews, he draws near in grace to the Gentiles, those who are not ethnically Jewish. I think John 1, 11 and 13 sums this up perfectly. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Well, friends, Jesus came to save sinners of all ethnicities. We begin to see examples in the scriptures from this point forward of Gentiles believing Jesus to be the Messiah. A little later in Matthew 15, the Canaanite woman, the Samaritan woman in John 4, the Roman centurion in John excuse me, in Luke 7, and then after Jesus comes the apostle Paul, who continues this ministry to the Gentiles. Romans 3, is God the God of the Jews only, Paul asks rhetorically? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. So that's a weighty judgment, grace for the Gentiles. And third, finally, a warning to remember. A warning to remember. Lastly, I want us to see that the ultimate reason that Jesus did not do many works there was because of unbelief. Here we have a final warning that the root of all sin is unbelief. One pastor described unbelief this way. He said, unbelief is dissatisfaction with God's fellowship and fortunes. It is discontent with his presence and provision. Out of this dissatisfaction and discontent, come all acts of sin. Therefore, the battle against sinning must be a battle against unbelief in our own hearts. It was unbelief that brought sin 
into this world. God, in his goodness, provided everything that Adam and Eve could ever need in the garden. God was clear in his loving commands that were meant to protect them and preserve fellowship with them. So then when Satan comes along and tempts them in the garden, it was a matter of believing or not believing what God had already said. And to this day, like our father Adam, we too battle most fundamentally with the same thing, unbelief. So may Adam and the folks in Jesus' hometown serve as a sobering reminder that the root of sin always asks the question, did God actually say? One of the primary ways that God has ordained for his people to fight sin, the sin of unbelief, is through the Lord's Supper. As we're about to sing here in a moment, the body of our Savior Jesus Christ, torn for you, eat and remember. The wounds that heal, the death that brings us life, paid the price to make us one. Uh, the unity that we share around the gospel is a unity that was purchased for us. Uh, church family, may we help one another cherish this gospel treasure until we see Jesus face to face. Uh, Christ was rejected so that you might be accepted. Have you understood all of these things? Let's pray.